From 1942 to 1945, Viktor Frankl was imprisoned in three different Nazi concentration camps, including the infamous camp at Auschwitz in what was then occupied Poland. In the evilness of torture, starvation, and genocide, Frankl observed what made the difference in those who survived. Now, factors like physical health and strength were significant, sure, but according to Frankel, who became a leading psychiatrist in Europe afterwards, the difference between those who made it and those who didn't was hope. Hope. To live for something beyond the camp. Something to look forward to. Something to go home to. This is what he wrote in his book, Man's Search for Meaning. He said the prisoner who had lost faith in the future, his future, was doomed. With his loss of belief in the future, he lost also his spiritual hold. He let himself decline and became subject to mental and physical decay. Usually this happened quite suddenly in the form of a crisis. The symptoms were familiar to the experienced camp inmate. Usually it began with the prisoner refusing one morning to get dressed or wash or go out to the parade grounds. No entreaties, no blows, no threats had any effect. He just laid there, hardly moving. If this crisis was brought about by an illness, he refused to be taken to the sick bay or to do anything to help himself. He simply gave up. There he remained, lying in his own excreta, and nothing bothered him anymore. In this section of Isaiah, God shows Isaiah the situation to come for his people, Judah. It wasn't a barbed wire concentration camp, but still it was a form of imprisonment nonetheless. It was exile. It was a foreign country invading them and taking them away from their home. It was a terrifying time. They were forced to travel across unknown territory, hundreds of miles away from their home. Their journey would have taken them at least four months. It would have went through rough terrain amidst thousands of robbers and bandits along the way. And when they finally reached their destination of Babylon, they did not find lives of lavishness and plenty. No, they found that they had to start over their lives completely. Now, what could have their thoughts been during that time? Well, this section gives us a little bit of an insight to that. Isaiah 40, verse 27, it says that they said, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. These are not positive words. What the people of Judah did was they looked at their situation, how bad it was, and like we frequently do, they blamed God for it. Now, what does God say to those who find themselves in the barbed wire of their own making and then blame him for it. What does God say to that? Well, the very first verse of Isaiah 40 sums it up well. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. What does God say? He gives more grace. He gives more grace. We can summarize the message of Isaiah 40 to 48 in this way. It's the main point, the kind of the big idea for the whole time. 
says, our hope in this world is that there is a God who is powerful and gracious and who keeps his promise to include sinners in his plan to glorify himself. You could maybe sum it up shorter. It's like God is real and God loves us and God is with us. (laughs) This hope is what motivates us to continue to pursue the Lord as we are strangers and exiles on the earth. As 1 John says, those who have the hope of the glory of the Lord purify themselves as they live on earth. This is what we want to do this morning. Look at our hope right in the face as we are exiles on the earth. Now, like much of Isaiah so far, this section is less of a step-by-step case and more of a cycle of themes that repeat. So these themes get introduced in chapter 40. If you're familiar with classical music, it's like the overture at the beginning of a piece. You see all the different parts right at the beginning. So what we'll do, we'll see these truths that the exiles of Judah had to press down deep into their hearts to survive in exile. I think we could see at least three truths throughout this section. I'm not going to give you all of them out front. You have to wait with bating breath one by one. But all of these truths get their start in chapter 40. So the first truth that the exiles were to press down deep into their hearts, that they were to make it, is that God is with us. God is with us. Now, when walking through any book of the Bible, we want to always get our bearings and see where we are within the story or the presentation of the book. So like we've alluded to already, chapter 40 marks a new section in Isaiah. Now, the first half of Isaiah are largely words of judgment, Judgment to God's people of Judah for the way they were living at the time. So Isaiah's task is summed up really well in chapter 6. Go out and speak against their way of living. They were living without God as their king. They were living in rebellion to God and putting other kings in their place, in his place. But now in chapter 40, Isaiah no longer speaks to Judah of his own day. He speaks to Judah of a later day. God gives him eyes to see what is to come. And he speaks of a Judah who is now in exile, carried off to the land of Babylon. And so the main message to this new audience is hope, it's comfort, it's salvation. This is picked up right away in chapter 40. So if you haven't turned there yet, go ahead, turn there now. Isaiah chapter 40, if you're looking at a Bible that looks like this in the pew rack, you'll find it on page 599, 599, Isaiah chapter 40. We're going to see God is with us. It's the first truth they need to dig down deep in their hearts if they're going to survive. And we're going to read verses 1 to 11. Isaiah 40, 1 to 11. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. 
The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to, high, to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. God is with us. Briefly, just looking back through these verses, let's notice how they flow together. Okay, so verses one to two, they set the tone for the entire passage. They show us when God is speaking to his people. He's speaking to his people during a time of warfare. He's speaking to his people during a time when they are in their sin. And he's going to answer both of them. Then verses 3 to 5 announce what God's about to do. His coming rule. See, these are words in verses 3 to 5 that are picked up by John the Baptist in the New Testament. When he announces the arrival of Jesus. The one who ultimately brings God's rule and God's kingdom. What God says here in verses 3 to 5 is, is kind of like what Marvin Gaye said in his song, Ain't No Mountain High. You know, God's basically saying there is, ain't no mountain high enough, no valley low enough, ain't no river wide enough to keep God from delivering you, babe. <laughs> in verses 6 to 8, God reminds them that people, people cannot get in the way of his promise to stick with his people can't get in the way of his promise to save his people. It says, people are unreliable. People are weak in comparison to me. They are like plants. They wither and fall to the ground. But my word, God's word, does not fade. It stands forever. And then in verses 9 to 11, God himself is just put in front of us. And we see what he does when he comes to reign. That with his might, he comes to care for his flock gathering them into his arms. Now, the overall message, we put all of that together, the overall message that Isaiah is writing to his people under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to those who are in exile, Isaiah's message is God is with you. God has not abandoned you. I know you are war-torn, Jerusalem, the precious capital city, is destroyed. But that does not mean that God has failed you. That does not mean that God will not keep his promise of grace, his promise to bring his glory. God is with you. God has not abandoned you. Brothers and sisters, in Christ, we need that message this morning, every day. God is with you. God has not abandoned you. I'm, I'm tempted. I, I, can't even, I don't know how to even dress that up, how to make it compelling. That God has not abandoned you. God is with you. Our trials, our situations have a way to make us feel trapped. I think that's the fear in trials. Living life together with just as 
a family of God. It's what I so often hear. Our trials are situations, whether it's home life, whether it's work, which is whatever stage we're in, we feel trapped. But friend, God is with you. God has not abandoned you. To the parent who feels alone to try to faithfully raise your kids to the empty nester who laments missed opportunities and feels lonely, to the cancer patient, to the one who continually gets knocked down by sin. If you are in Christ, God is with you. He's not abandoned you. For him to go back on that promise, he would have to stop being God. God is with you. God has more words of comfort to these exiles. He speaks of how he views them, how he cares for them, how he has grace toward them. I'm going to touch down on a couple more examples of this throughout the passage. So turn with me to chapter 41 and notice verses 8 to 10. Chapter 41, verses 8 to 10. Just seeing that same message again reiterated, what it looks like. God is with you. Chapter 41, verses 8 to 10. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying to you, you are my servants. I have chosen you and not cast you off. For I am with you. Be not dismayed. For I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. Sweet words. Even more. One more example. Go to chapter 43, right at the very beginning. Chapter 43, verses 1 to 5. But now, thus says the Lord who created you. O Jacob, he who formed you. O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored. And I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. You see how they needed to dig down deep in their hearts these truths. That God is with them. That he has not abandoned them. Now what does that mean? What does it mean for God to be with them? Would these passages help us a little bit? So in chapter 41, for God to be with them, we learn that God is with them and will not abandon them because he has chosen them. Chapter 41, verse 8, he will not abandon them because he has chosen them. So here, friends, the doctrine of election, as it is throughout Scripture, is not used for controversy, it's used for comfort. It's used for comfort and assurance. Because if God has chosen to give them grace, if God has chosen to save them, he won't undo that choice. 
Remember that God chose them not because he saw something in them. Deuteronomy 7, 7. It's not because they were mighty or populous or strong nation. He chose them simply because he chose them. But he loved them. He chose them as he chose us in Christ. As Ephesians 1, 4 says, to the praise of his glory. God won't abandon those he's chosen. And that shows us just how gloriously gracious he is. Now, to remain with them, what what does it look like to be with them, not to abandon them? It also looks like, as chapter 41 tells him, it looks like that he will strengthen them. He will help them. He will uphold them with his righteous right hand. That all of his ways, all of the ways that he acts are right and are good. So that they can say, in whatever situation they find themselves in, with the eyes of faith, they can say that God is in in it. God is with us in it, and he is up to something good. They can say that in any situation they're in. What does it look like for God to be with them? We're able to flesh that out throughout this passage. Looking at chapter 43, verses 1 to 5. For God to be with them, not to abandon them, looks like them knowing that he is the one who created them. He is their maker. He is the one who redeemed them, who purchased them for himself, who protects them, who works in them during their trials. And I think maybe the most precious of all, what does it look like for God to be with them? Well, it looks like them them knowing that he is the one who loves them. Just get a sweet, beautiful phrase in chapter 43, I love you. Friends, these can be, these should be the truths that fill us moment by moment, day by day. God is with me. God has not abandoned me. God sustains me. God helps me. God has forgiven me, and God loves me. These truths press down deep into our hearts. As the Apostle Peter says later on in the New Testament, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. In other words, we can state all of those simple truths all the more boldly because of Jesus, the one who is called Emmanuel, God with us. On the cross, Jesus received the treatment from the Father that we deserved so that we could receive the treatment that he deserves. Jesus was abandoned so that we would never have to be. Jesus rose from the dead, so now he is with us always to the end of the age. Jesus gave us the Holy Spirit as a promise that he will always be with us. All of this confirms the simple truth more strongly. God is with us. God will not abandon us. I think we should be careful, some of us should be careful in how we long for what's often referred to as the meat of the word. You know, the deep doctrine, the technical details, and the historical context. I lost some of you with those words. That's okay. Um, It's not that that stuff doesn't matter. But, you know, the street-level, everyday truth that we need as exiles on the earth who aren't yet home. It's the truth that God is with me. God loves me. 
God has not abandoned me. Now, all that's underneath that is meaty stuff. But if studying the word and going after that meat, as we call it, doesn't lead us to cherish God and cherish his grace more, friends, we've missed the point. We've missed the point. You may have heard or remember the story of Karl Barth, uh, one of the most prominent and brilliant theologians in the 20th century. Toward the end of his life, he was at some conference speaking somewhere, and he was asked if he could summarize the millions of words that he's published in his career. He gave us a surprising answer. He said this, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. One of the most brilliant theologians in church history. That's how he sums it up. Make no mistake, friends, Judah, the people of Judah then, had real reasons to be afraid. Real reasons to be, as the the old word puts it, dismayed. These are normal responses. It's okay to have these responses. But the central promise that God gives them and God gives us is not that he's not going to give us anything we can't handle. No, the central promise is that he will be with them and he will be with us. That is a better reason not to fear than to fear. And so notice, this is how God starts off his address to exiles. He speaks first to their fear before he speaks to their problem. Maybe that should give us insight in how we process our fears and our problems and how we help others through them as well. Speak to the fear. And he does that by stating a very simple truth. I'm with you. I'm with you. The second truth that the people of Judah needed to dig down deep in their hearts as they headed into exile is that God is God. God is God. And there is no other. Now, it's one thing to make a promise. It's another to be able to back it up. This truth reminds us of who it is that makes this promise. So let's go back to chapter 40. We'll see this promise get its start, this theme get its start in this section. Chapter 40, and we'll read verses 12 to 26. Chapter 40, 12 to 26. Who has measured the water in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man can show him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it. And a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. 
He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth his emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth, when he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. God is God, and there is no other. In this section of Isaiah 40, we see two aspects about God. The same one who brought the words of comfort at the beginning of chapter 40. We see God's bigness, and we see God's uniqueness. His bigness and his uniqueness. I'm not sure if bigness is a word, but I'm going to go with it. His bigness and his uniqueness. Now, Isaiah, just to walk through this passage a little bit, Isaiah goes to nature. He goes the wonders of creation to show the bigness and beauty of God. He paints for us a vivid picture in verse 12. So look at verse 12, and, and if you'll oblige me, I want you to look at the palm of your hand. The palm of your hand. You see how there's, it's, it's like a little bowl in the palm of your hand. Like you could fill a little bit of water in it if you wanted to. And sometimes if I don't have a cup after I brush my teeth, that's what I do. Um, <laughs> And so you could fill a little bit there. Now, as you're looking at that, imagine that you're standing at the edge of the ocean. I don't know, your favorite place in the Atlantic, Pacific. You're just seeing like a quarter of a percentage of all the water that's in the earth. And what Isaiah says here is there is someone who can hold all of that here. That's how big God is. Now, that's poetic language because God is spirit. God does not have a body like us, but Isaiah is trying to make a point that God is bigger than anything you know. Now, just to walk through this passage a little bit more, verses 13 and 14, Isaiah says, in his creation, God did not need any advice. That's not how the other so-called gods worked. All this, all the earth, all the universe came from one mind, his alone. And what sort of mind? could design all of this. And if this is how big God is, then he isn't in need of anything. He isn't in need of any improvement, of any help, of any service. That's what Isaiah says in verse 15. It is God governs what he's made. He says the nations are like a drop from a bucket. Now, if you were carrying a bucket full of water, I don't know, going to do some chore around the house, and just a, a little tiny drop came out of it. Would you go back and try to search the ground and try to pick it up? No. The point isn't that God doesn't love the nations, but the nation's rebellion against God is not a problem for God. And it's not a problem for bringing about his plan and ushering in his kingdom. 
God is bigger than the schemes of people. Verse 26, this is maybe my favorite example from creation. Verse 26, Isaiah tells us to look up, turns our eyes upwards to look at the stars. It's one of the unfortunate parts of living in suburbs, like you can't see that many stars. You might see Orion's belt. Um, but the Babylonians, who they were in exile to, they were astrologers. They worshiped the stars. They believed that the stars controlled their fate. What Isaiah does now, he says, look at the God who made the stars, who controls the stars. How much more can we appreciate God's bigness in creation, knowing what we know? Just taking from one author who says, our solar system is inside the galaxy called the Milky Way. Many of us know that. This galaxy we live in is shaped like a spiral, a gigantic pinwheel spinning in the open expanse of space with our solar system rotating around the center of this galaxy once every million years or so. We lie about two-thirds of the way from the center of this galaxy in what might be considered the boondocks. The Milky Way is 104,000 light years across, containing 100 billion stars. To count them one by one would take us something like 3,000 years. And according to the latest probings of the Hubble telescope, there are hundreds of billions of galaxies in God's universe. Isaiah's goal in this description, and really his entire book, can be summed up in chapter 40, verse 9. Behold your God. <laughs> this is how big and how glorious God is. Now, preaching through this book has reminded me that, that preaching, biblical Christian preaching, should be attempted as feebly as we can to bring the real and glorious and powerful and merciful God to real people in real life. Now, for all eternity, we will be consumed and awestruck with God. Why should now be any different? The bigness and glory and incredibleness of God, to make up another word. The God who made everything. It reminds us that idolatry is not only worshiping something in the place of God, it's also worshiping a wrong view of God. It's worshiping a God who is too small. That's what the Israelites did at the foot of Mount Sinai. You remember the golden calf? They called the golden calf Yahweh. That's who they said God was. So friend, is your view of God too small? Is your view of God the man upstairs? Is your view of God, this is my co-pilot? Is your view of God, this is the God of my own understanding? A fellow physicist said this about what Albert Einstein thought of Christian preaching. He said, the design of the universe is very magnificent and shouldn't be taken for granted. In fact, I believe that is why Einstein had so little use for organized religion. He must have looked at what the preachers said about God and felt they were blaspheming. He had seen much more majesty than they had ever imagined. They were just not talking about the real thing. Friends, with God's help, let's talk about the real thing. God himself. And think thoughts, or rightly, rightly think thoughts about him. Not thoughts that are too small. 
A.W. Tozer said, the essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. Let's think right thoughts about God, which means, friends, that as we approach him to worship him, there should be humility, there should be wonder, there should be reverence and praise as we approach him who is glorious beyond our imagination. The point of Isaiah's demonstration of God's bigness is to show them that the one who makes these promises to them is God. And if God manages the universe right down to the very faintest star, do you think, people of Judah, that he's going to lose track of you? Who is the one who makes these promises? It's God. And God is big. There is no other. What chapter 40 also shows us about the God who makes these promises of grace is God's uniqueness. It shows us God's uniqueness, especially in comparison to idols. We see that in chapter 40, verses 18 to 20. Now, you may be well averse. Uh, idols are not just little statues. Idols are anything we put in the place of God, anything we worship, anything we pursue that we think will make us happy, significant, satisfied, comfortable, in control. The Bible says in Ezekiel that idols can affect our hearts, our deepest affections, our deepest loves. You remember the first commandment, Exodus 20. First commandment, I am the Lord your God, and you shall have no other gods before me. You see how there's only two possibilities in the first commandment. Either the Lord is your God, or another God is your God. There's no third option. There's no not having a God. Everybody worships. Everybody lives for something. You may not worship in a formerly religious way, but you worship nonetheless. So God shows us here and throughout his word his uniqueness, that he alone is worthy of our lives. He alone is worthy of our worship. So he compares himself to idols, and he does that in other places throughout these chapters. Go to chapter 44, verses 6 to 8. Chapter 44, verses 6 to 8. God showing his uniqueness in comparison to idols. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told thee from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. See here, God is not afraid of clear thinking. He doesn't say, turn off your mind. He says, turn it on and think this out. He invites a challenge. Who is like him? You look at verse 7, you see the crux of that challenge. What is the crux of who is like God? Verse 7, God says, let them declare what is to come. Let them declare what will happen. Now, the Babylonians, those who would capture Judah, would attempt to consult their gods and see the future by doing things like cutting open sheep, looking at their intestines, and attempting to find a message therein. 
They claimed to tell the future. What God says, I'm calling you out for false advertising. The mark of the true God, it's not just that he knows all of time, friends, that he determines all of time. And if that weren't the case, he'd just be another dead idol. If that weren't the case, then everything would be left up to chance. People don't think out those implications of there not being a sovereign God. Everything would be an accident. Everything, including them, including us, everything would be purposeless and nothing would ultimately matter. The future would be uncertain. So in these chapters, God proves he uniquely rules over what he's made. And he gives one example. He proves that he determines history He gives one very clear example. We read about it earlier in the service. He says he's going to raise up a king named Cyrus. Like he names this guy by his actual name years before he appeared. He says, I'm going to raise up Cyrus from another kingdom, Persia, who will defeat the Babylonians. He talks about this in chapters 41, 44, 45. He said this years before it happens. God alone is God because God alone determines and rules over history. Now, friends, just think this out about who and what we worship, who and what we give our lives to. If God alone is God, then relying on, worshiping, giving your life to anything else is foolish. It's foolish. Isaiah makes this point several times throughout this passage. You go in the rest of chapter 44. He simply describes the person who makes idols. He says this person cuts down a tree. He uses some to burn. He uses some to keep warm. He uses other parts for cooking. And he cuts down the other parts of the tree, makes it into a shape of the person, falls down before it, worships it, and asks it to save him. Foolishness of worshiping anything else besides God. Chapter 46. You can look there right at the very beginning. God shows the defeat of the Babylonian gods, Bel and Nebo. Now, just a little bit of a background. Bel was the patron god of Babylon, the king of the gods, determiner of the destinies of the nations. Nebo was his eldest son. They represented the ideals of Babylon. Just as a side note, notice that Isaiah nowhere says that these are just other names for the same god that everyone worships. These are false gods. Now, every year at the New Year Festival, Bel and Nebo were carried around in grand procession. It's kind of a good luck charm for the coming year. Now, Isaiah envisions this same processional. And you know what he sees? He sees gods that have to be carried by livestock. And his point is that, friends, if if you have to carry your god How do you expect that God to carry you? If your God cannot strengthen itself, how will it strengthen you? If your God cannot help itself, how will it help you? They will let you down. Just simple proof, are Bell and Nebo still around? Long gone. Again, this doesn't work for just statues. Anything we give our lives to besides God, we will have to carry, and it will let us down. Someone I graduated high school with uh, this past week, we have a class Facebook page 
It's always interesting when there's anything posted on there. Um, and she posted something on there, and it was interesting. Um, you know, she is now a bodybuilder. Um, and so she kind of posted a picture saying, like, this is me now, and um, this is how I transform. It's like, it's great. It's good to take seriously your physical health. Um, but just from a distance, um, what I saw and what I hope is not the case is that her self-image can become a God she has to carry. And the minute she stops carrying that God, it will let her down. And that God will not save her. That God will not love her. That God will only make demands of her. My friends, why worship such a thing? Why not worship a God that died for you? God is with you. And Isaiah says, remember who it is that makes that promise. He is able to make good on that promise because he alone is God, the creator, the ruler. Now, what does God say to those who have minimized him, who have exchanged him for what they think will make them more happy than him? He calls them to listen. He loves idolaters and calls them to experience his salvation. God's promises can lift us out of our weariness for living for idols. And since we will always worship something, here's the key, friends. Since we always worship something, then the way we get rid of the idols of our hearts is by replacing them with something better. So God speaks to us idolaters about the real hope we can have when he replaces our idols. That's what we read at the end of chapter 40. Let's go back there. End of chapter 40, beginning in verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall, shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Three truths. These exiles needed to dig down deep in their hearts if they were going to survive exile. God is with them. God alone is God. And God will deliver. God will deliver. That's truth number three. In other words, God will not let them down. They may have to wait, but deliver them, God will. So in their situation, they're going to see this fulfilled, a physical deliverance fulfilled to the person of Cyrus, like we mentioned earlier. The Persian king who would conquer Babylon, set the Judah captives free. God talks about that in chapter 45. Now there is a little bit of a curiosity God raising up Cyrus, a Persian king, because God just spent all this time talking about how foolish Idol worship is. Worship, worshiping anything besides him is. But now he says he's going to raise up Cyrus to deliver them. And who was Cyrus? Cyrus was an idol worshiper. So Judah, maybe like us, is saying, wait, hold up, wait a second. This doesn't make any sense. 
Why would you do that? Naturally confused, naturally even a little upset by this. But what this shows us here, God raising up Cyrus to deliver them, is that God's rule and plan are big and wise enough even to include what's offensive. It shows us here that God can include evil in his plan without being responsible for it and without being dirtied by it. And he can do that for our good and his glory. Now, all the workings of that, how it works out, you're probably like me, is beyond me. But if you don't believe that, that God can even include evil in his plan without being dirtied by it, you're going to have a hard time explaining the cross. You're going to have a hard time explaining the cross. The most evil act in all of history, it says, was the design of God. The design of God to bring about the salvation of sinners. So this physical deliverance, even through a wicked king, an idol-worshiping king like Cyrus, reminds Judah of the very simple truth we sang earlier that this is my father's world. And though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. God will deliver. He will not let them down. The real hope with which he replaces our idols comes in the form of a figure, says his servant. He describes him in chapter 42. This is the one who ultimately replaces our idols. This is the last part we'll read. Chapter 42, we're going to read verses 1 to 9. Behold my servants whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and the new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. As one commentator observes, you notice this servant here is the opposite of Israel and Judah. The servant fills God with delight. He's quiet and gentle. He's faithful and persevering. He does not falter or become discouraged. Judah and Israel, by contrast, are resentful and complaining, fearful, dismayed. They're blind, they're deaf, they're disobedient. Now, what will this faithful servant do? It's going to become clear as we move on in the chapters beyond this passage. But right here, we could say, that the servants will bring justice. In other words, he will undo all of the horrendous effects of sin that are on us. He will bring forgiveness. 
he will set the captives free. And friends, this he will do by dying and rising again. We opened with one Holocaust survivor. We'll close with another. You likely have heard of him, maybe read his book in school, Elie Wiesel, the author of the book Night. When Wiesel was 15 years old, he witnessed a child being put to death, being put to death slowly by being hung. And when as onlookers were looking on, uh, he heard someone in the camp asking, where is God now? And Wiesel said, I heard a voice within me that said and answered him, where is he? Here he is. He is hanging there on this gallows. We don't pretend to know the depths of evil that Wiesel saw and experienced. But even some survivors of the Holocaust have experienced the hope beyond the barbed wire prison of this world that this passage talks about. The hope of the God who brings justice. Who brings justice, not by remaining distant from suffering, but by actually entering into suffering. How? Actually by being one who hung on the gallows himself. God will not let us down. God will deliver. Friends, just look at Jesus, his servant. So as we walk through the Babylon of this world, we have a choice. Either we will settle down here where there is no hope, where we can please ourselves with cheap God substitutes until we die, as the end of chapter 48 says, or we can cross the line. Say no more preconditions. No more lukewarm commitment. Where we can say to Jesus, Lord, you are the hope of the world. You are my hope, my only hope. And I admit my share of responsibility for the world as it is. So forgive my injustice. Destroy my idols. And make me the kind of human being that lives up to your name. You are my salvation, and I give my allegiance entirely to you all of my days. God is God, and he saved us, and he's with us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, comfort us with your grace, sweet promises. Lift up our weary arms, lift up our heads to see you again, the one who says, you are with us. God, keep us going. God, help us to know you, the one who makes these promises, that you alone are God, you are glorious, there is no other, and that you loved us so much, you gave your only begotten son, Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall live forever. And the one who rose again is the one who is with us now. We thank you, Lord. Press this down deep into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.